Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm here with Terry Fakes this week, and we're going to just do the one-two punch of First and Second Corinthians. So following up on First Corinthians, there's a lot of things that connect together with Second Corinthians. And, and although they do stand alone, it's hard to understand what Paul's saying and doing in Second Corinthians without a knowledge of what happened in his visit to Corinth, his initial visit, his letter. And then there's some interesting historical things going on in this book. So we're going to give an overview of 2 Corinthians today. And as always with these book overviews, our goal is that you would read these books. Right. That this wouldn't just be uh, something where you learn a few interesting pieces of information, but that it would help you read the book yourself and understand it and study it. And so hopefully by giving a sketch and an outline and some background, um, you'd be encouraged to go read 2 Corinthians. Right. And uh, I really hope you do. I think 2 Corinthians might be my favorite book of the New Testament, just in terms of everything that is in this book. I think on the one hand, you have a very complex background that is, is mm-hmm. I mean, you know, on a scholarly level, people are really not sure what's going on in the background of 2 Corinthians. Right. Um, but on a personal and especially on a pastoral level, 2 Corinthians is probably the most comforting, deepest, most affectionate letter that Paul writes. And you get some of the most beautiful passages in the entire New Testament here in 2 Corinthians. The third thing I would say is this is kind of a pastor's letter in in a lot of ways. Uh, If you've been in ministry, there are parts of 2 Corinthians that are going to resonate with you that most people are not going to understand, at least on the same level. I mean, you'll feel you'll feel a camaraderie with Paul on a level in Second Corinthians that you don't feel anywhere else in the New Testament, and that's because uh, one of the things that's at the base of Second Corinthians is being in ministry is really hard, mm-hmm. and leading a church is really hard. And if you're not in ministry and you're listening to this, no offense, but Churches can be really mean to their pastors sometimes. Like, and I'm not this saying this church was being to Paul. Yeah, and I'm not saying that with anything in mind necessarily. I'm saying right. if you're in ministry for long enough, you're going to walk through some very difficult seasons. Some of them of your own making, and some of them of your people's making. Right, and that's just a reality to, to ministry into the church. And I think Second Corinthians gives us a great window into that. And uh, the experiences that happen when a bunch of sinful people get together and try to follow Christ. So let's start with a little bit of the background, um, if we can. What's going on between First and Second Corinthians? Good question. Uh, let's situate us in time. So basically, Paul is in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, and he's there in about 50 to 51 AD for about 18 months. He then moves on to Ephesus, and he's in Ephesus for 53, 4, and 5, and while he's there, he writes what we call 1 Corinthians, and it addresses a number of problems that they're having, and one of the problems is there are speakers there that are criticizing Paul. They're Christian, eloquent Christian speakers criticizing Paul. That's one of the many things. So by Paul leaves Ephesus after he's written this letter and goes on to Macedonia. He's planting churches everywhere he goes. He's having Uh, Great success and great difficulty. And so about a year later, maybe 55 or 56 AD, he's in Macedonia and he writes this letter. There are letters here we don't have. He seems to have been in pretty constant contact with them. But this letter of 2 Corinthians is written 
to address some criticism that Paul is getting in Corinth. Not only do they have a lot of problems that you read about in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, it's more personal attacks on Paul mm-hmm. and what he's teaching. And is he really a very good preacher? And do we really want to listen to this guy? And mm-hmm. by the way, where is he? Why has he not come to visit us? Mm-hmm. Which I think tells us something about the Corinthian church. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think the background of this is really important in Paul's life, but it's also important in Corinth. Corinth, mm-hmm. what we're going to see in this letter, and we saw this a little bit in 1 Corinthians, it's just not as explicit. Corinth, The church in Corinth is a very selfish church. They're a very consumeristic church. They want Paul to meet their demands. They yeah. want Paul to do what they think a pastor should do, and that is speak really well, dazzle them with his rhetoric and with his argument, and come visit them, um, which these other people, these super apostles, are doing, and Paul isn't. Right. Now, along with that, as you already mentioned, some of this is being spurred on by these super apostles who are charging for their ministry and are disparaging Paul and saying he's not much of a he's not much of a preacher. He's really not much of a pastor either because he's not here very often. Yeah, and that term, by the way, super apostles, is one that Paul coins in, I think, a kind of a sarcastic way. Oh, I'm an apostle, but they're super apostles. Yeah, it's a derogatory yeah. term. But so in in the beginning of Second Corinthians, the other backdrop that's important is something terrible has happened to Paul in Asia. So when Paul goes to uh, Macedonia, he he says, we don't exactly know what's going on in this time period in Paul's life, and we don't have anything in Acts that, that sounds like it fits the circumstances exactly. Right. But he says in the beginning of the letter that we, we don't want you to be ignorant. We want you to, to know that what happened to us in Asia, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, Paul's going to use that experience and a lot of other experiences in his life to talk about perseverance and comfort and faithfulness in this letter. But the backdrop is he's been through something horrible, and we don't know what that is. Right. It's it's interesting to think about because this is the guy who later in this book is going to talk about being stoned and left for dead, being beaten, getting the 40 lashes, like it's nothing. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay, yeah. so that happened. And here in the beginning of the book, he, something really horrible is is influencing the way that he's thinking. We don't really know what that is, but it's clear that he's been thinking about things other than the Corinthian church. Right. And that is one of the things that's got the Corinthian church upset at <laughs> You're all. not thinking about us You're enough. not thinking about us enough. The other thing, and you mentioned this a little bit, is 2 Corinthians is probably 3rd or 4th Corinthians in terms of letters that were actually written. So we know that there's one letter that he refers to that we don't have. And that's because not everything Paul wrote was inspired. Only the stuff that made it into the scriptures is inspired. We have exactly what God wanted us to have. It's not like when they got together to compile the Bible, they couldn't find that other letter the bishops from Corinth didn't show up, and so they'd use a copy from. You know. <laughs> yeah, or they had two or three others, and they tossed them out. Right. They, I mean, it's everything the, we're supposed to have. We have. We have what we're supposed to have, but but there is another letter that he 
um, a sorrowful letter uh-huh. that he refers to that we don't have. Right. And so because of that, there's possibly a letter before 1 Corinthians that mm-hmm. we don't have, but it's hard to construe how many there were. Like you said, they were in pretty constant contact. This one is called 2 Corinthians because it's the second letter to the Corinthians in the New Testament. Right. In actuality, it might have been 4 Corinthians. We don't right. know. The other thing that's worth noting is if you're going to study 2 Corinthians, there are a lot of scholars who think that 2 Corinthians is multiple letters mashed together in this letter that we now have. And mm-hmm. the reason that people think that is because there are some pretty big splits in the subject matter. So, for example, you're going through and the first few chapters are pretty unified around the same topic. And then when you get to chapter 8 and 9, you get something totally and completely different about the collection in Jerusalem, which we're going to talk about later. Then all of a sudden in chapter 10, you hop back into this autobiographical defense of the ministry. You go through that in all the way through chapter 12. And then uh, you have uh, travel plans at the end. And so you'll see this construed as this is maybe two letters. So maybe the letter that he refers to has been found and mashed in the middle of this. I think that's very unlikely. And the other, some scholars, I mean, this, it's just way easier to just think that maybe this is a bunch of different stuff than it is to, to actually have to think through why Paul may have said what he said after what he said before it. I've seen a commentator propose that this is 13 different letters, all <laughs> interpolated together. Uh-huh. But that's kind of modern scholarship. Well, can I get on my soapbox for a second? This is my problem with some of the critical scholarship that uh, is text criticism, redaction criticism. What those are are ways of looking at a text that have nothing to do with history, have nothing to do with theology. They simply look at the text and say, you know what, this seems like a big subject change. I'll bet this was a different letter. Yeah. Well, let me give you another possibility just to, to say it's kind of crazy to jump to that conclusion. You know, we think that Paul sat down one day and he wrote all of 2 Corinthians. I don't do that with something this long. Maybe he wrote the first six or seven chapters. He didn't have chapters, but he wrote that part, and then he had to go preach. And a month later, or two weeks later, they're in another city, and he says, okay, let's finish this. I need to tell them. And he goes on about something else. I think we just make a lot of assumptions Mm -hmm. that aren't necessarily good assumptions. There are other ways to explain this than he's mashing together 13 different letters. Well, I think one of the important things is he two two important things are number number one he's dictating these right. letters you can definitely tell that in this letter this is a stream of consciousness letter <laughs> yeah. um, another reason why it's a pastor's letter is because I've heard a lot of sermons that follow this exact same <laughs> line of thinking stream of consciousness it's very stream of consciousness uh, you got a couple of hot button issues then you get back to the topic and then you go back to a couple of things that are just in your craw. Uh-huh. And, yeah, we've but all done that. You hear that, but then two, you get a sense of what is on Paul's heart and what is on his mind, and uh, whether that flows around or not uh, as he's dictating, it does have a unified whole. This is a defense of his apostolic ministry, and what he's trying to do with the Corinthians is convince them that their their vision of what the church should be and what pastoral ministry should be, and even to an extent what the gospel should be, Mm -hmm. is falling short of the whole picture that God has given them. And I don't think it's an accident that he spends so much time talking about suffering because 
suffering reveals some of the depths of the power of God that Paul talks about in this letter that the Corinthians really haven't experienced. Right. And I think, and I don't want to, I don't want to say that this is the only way this can be read, but one of the ways that Paul's defense can be read is if you had been through what I'd been through, you would see this a little bit differently. That's There's a good definitely way of a message yeah. uh, of perspective mm-hmm. for Paul in Second Corinthians. So let's do an overview, and then we can camp out on on a few of the the places in this letter. Yeah, the first seven chapters are really Paul replying to some of these opponents. For example, he spends a lot of time explaining why he didn't come to see them when he had hoped to. Apparently, that was something his opponents latched onto and said, you can't even trust this guy. He said he was going to show up. Mm -hmm. And then he writes to them and said, you know, we've had some things happen here while we're planting churches, and we thought we were even going to be killed. It's like, mm-hmm. so trust me, guys, it wasn't a flippant decision. Yeah, he, he's being charged with being uh, inconsistent and flaky right. for not coming to see them. And he gives a long explanation. It was so that he didn't cause them harm. It was because he was doing other things, like almost getting killed. I mean, a lot of a lot of that in the first seven chapters. Um, and two, there's a defense of the way that he's preaching the gospel in the first right. seven chapters. So you probably get this the most in a few sections. Uh, you see him talk about comfort at the beginning of chapter one. You also see him denounce the other ways of preaching the gospel that are based more on the power of man and right. not on the power of God. So, so we look, we denounce underhanded ways of peddling the gospel. He's really upset at some of these people who are charging for preaching the gospel. And he even says, he's like, I'm an apostle. I can charge for the, the, the ministry that I'm doing, but I'm not because I don't want to be a burden to you. And uh, in chapter two, he's talking about forgiveness. He's, he's going back and forth with them about how they're viewing him. Chapter three, he's going to defend their ministry as uh, apostles, the confidence that they have in Christ. You get a bunch of these really famous passages in here. I'll just point out a couple, and I know you have a few too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the glory of the ministry of Christ is something that he refers to again and again. Chapter 3, he talks about the hope that we have, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, the law essentially. Uh, For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, he says in verse 14 of chapter 3, the veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's important to read this verse in context. This This is a verse that gets taken out of context a lot. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Just an amazing passage about the freedom and the insight and the ability to turn away from sin that we have in the gospel. And so Paul is using that to talk to them about his own preaching. He is commissioned by God. And something really does change from Greco-Roman rhetoric when you have the Spirit of God. This goes back to a theme in 1 Corinthians, chapters 1 through 4. Good speaking is not the sum of the gospel. The gospel is a demonstration of the power of the Spirit to change people's lives. 
That's why Paul, although he's not as good a speaker, has a more powerful message right. than some of these orators that come through Corinth. I'm glad you cleared that up because I had always thought that verse where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom meant, where the Spirit of the Lord is, everything is permissible to me. Man, right. you have really chopped down my world here a little bit. Yeah, this goes back to the discussions we had in 1 Corinthians over what is open to the Christian conscience and what yeah. is not. So chapter 4, 5, and 6 are just beautiful passages. You get the portion in here uh, where he's talking about, look, the, the, the thing about the gospel is the gospel matters more than the messenger. So the message is the most important thing. You see him say in, in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay. The messenger is not as important as the message. And we are afflicted in every way, we're, but we're not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This whole three-chapter yeah. section is about the power of the message in spite of the suffering that they've gone through. You know, verse 16 picks that up in chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. And goes on about these difficulties are only momentary and the glory that is to come. Let me ask your opinion on this. As I was, uh, I can't remember where I read this, but I read a commentator one time talking about this, that Paul's opponents, I don't know if this is true, but I think it's an intriguing idea, that one of the charges Paul's opponents were making about him is that he suffered too much to be a good Christian. Mm -hmm. In other words, look at this guy's life and look how much he suffers. That can't be the way of Christ. Yeah. What do you think about that uh, That conjecture? I think that's spot on. I think that you have to remember that Paul was in and out of prison. He was beaten. He was always on the wrong side of the authorities. Mm -hmm. And that was as shameful then as it is now. Right. Who Who's going to go to church at a place where the pastor is always in and out of prison, getting beaten, <laughs> and... Uh, is constantly having run-ins with the law. Nobody. Nobody. That has the same stigma now that it had then. You see this when Paul writes to Timothy. He says, don't be ashamed of my chains. Right. He's defending the fact that he is suffering on behalf of the Lord. He's not suffering because he's just an abrasive person. He is suffering on behalf of Christ. And in some ways in this letter, what he's doing is he's throwing down the gauntlet and saying, and if you aren't, yeah. then you don't get it. You don't understand the depth of the comfort of God. You're not speaking boldly enough. You don't have the best interest of the Christians at heart. So he's actually going to challenge. He's going to turn that around and say, right. if these super apostles, if these people who are telling you this were really doing the work of ministry like I'm doing, they would be encountering the same thing. You know, that's really uh, important to remember. And he's got the right on his side. And I mean it in this way. If you think about what those teachers are doing, think about what Paul's preaching. You know, in Romans, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of 
Christ for salvation. If you think about who Jesus was, if you lived in Corinth, you were a secular guy, and they say, I want to tell you about Jesus. Yeah, I read about him in the paper. He's that convicted criminal under Pilate who was crucified and humiliated. Yeah, that's the guy I want to talk to you about. So the teachers are then saying, I mean, so Paul's like, no, seriously, look at Christ, the author of our faith. Look at his life. You're going to have a hard time preaching a prosperity gospel here, guys. But what they're saying is, okay, now wait a minute. Let's not take this too far. This Paul guy, you do not have to live a life like that to be a Christian. You can live a healthy, wealthy, and wise kind of a life. Mm -hmm. You're really seeing a pretty modern clash because we are kind of like Corinthians, Cole. We live in an affluent, secular society as Christians, and we don't want for much. I mean, compared to the rest of the world. I'm not denying our hardships. But that's kind of the way the Corinthians were. They were relatively affluent. And I think that's what those teachers were teaching. Yeah, and Paul is concerned to the point that he's worried that the Corinthians are not Christians. Yeah. So at the end of chapter 5, he says, you know, if anybody is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. All this is from God. He gives us part. We are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal, working together with him then. We appeal to you, chapter 6, verse 1, not to receive the grace of God in vain. What would constitute receiving the grace of God in vain? Well, he says, now is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and affliction, hardships, calamities, beatings, goes on and on, sleepless nights. Uh, but instead, we have, we have truthful speech by the Holy Spirit, genuine love, the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness through honor and dishonor. Yeah. We are treated as impostors, and yet we are true, as unknown and yet well-known, dying, and behold, we live punished but not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich as having nothing but possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. And he says, would you also widen your hearts to receive us? Yeah. Paul is just confronting straight on. The way of the world is not the way of the gospel. Right. You have to get used to that. You cannot evaluate things from worldly standpoint and expect to make the right call on what God is doing in the world. He's saying, look, we're getting beaten up everywhere. Everything is upside down for us. But in in so doing, we are the ambassadors of Christ. We are doing the work of God. And this is actually a proof of it. That's right. I mean, he's actually, you said this in the last podcast, podcast about on 1 Corinthians, you said Paul, instead of responding to his critics and saying, yeah, that's fine, but I've got an MDiv now, and oh, I've been working on my preaching, and oh, mm-hmm. I'm much more eloquent now, he doubles down and says, no, I've suffered even more since I last saw you. And I just think that's really interesting. He will not compromise the gospel by putting it in the hands of any techniques or wisdom or power of mankind. Mm-hmm. So once we get to the end of chapter 7, he's made this appeal to them. He's trying to reshape and reform their worldview, their consciences, the way they evaluate things. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he's going to go back and talk about the collection that he's, that he's accumulating for Jerusalem. 
And the background on this is in Jerusalem in the mid, I would say the early 50s, there's a famine. Mm-hmm. And Paul says, we got to do something about this. And so on his missionary journeys, he takes up a collection to take back with him to Jerusalem. And he's already asked the Corinthians about it, I think, in person. He's asked him about it in 1 Corinthians in the letter. And now, in chapters 8 and 9, he's going to give a little bit of a testimonial as to how the other churches in Macedonia have been giving. And he's going to drive in, he's going to drive his point home a little bit here and say, look, these churches aren't nearly as wealthy as you guys are. Right. And they have given a lot more money. They gave out of their poverty, and God has blessed them. And uh, he introduces Titus here. Titus is one Uh of his associates. We're going to get the book of Titus when he leaves him on Crete to put things into order. And uh, he's kind of uh, another pastor, elder, almost like a bishop in some ways, not the way we use that word today, but overseer of different churches. And this turns pretty quickly into a fundraising letter. Yeah, and it's really interesting in chapter 9. Listen to this. He says, uh, I've been bragging to the Macedonians saying that you guys in Greece, you Corinthians, have been ready since last year. Your zeal has stirred them up. Uh, But I'm going to send some brothers to you so that our boasting may not prove in vain. Because if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated. And so would you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the gift that you promised. And so it's fundraising, but it's also, I want you to live up to your commitments. Certainly. Yeah, there's nothing underhanded about this, but it is persuasive. Paul is a shrewd guy. And, you know, this is maybe a little bit more technical, but some people read 1 Corinthians 1 through 4 as a total denouncement of persuasion. And you see this trickle down in really odd ways. There are certain groups of, of Christians, and it's not even denominational. It's more like little factions within the denominations that uh-huh. don't believe that you should illustrate in sermons. They don't believe that you should use any kind of persuasion. You shouldn't uh, use any personal stories. Wait, you, are you saying I've been doing this wrong all yeah, along? you've been doing it very wrong. <laughs> No, but they don't believe that you should do anything that might be conceived of as offering anything but the Word of God. And the problems I have with that, the three problems I have are, number one, it's not the way that preaching is construed in the New Testament. First of all, if that's what you think, just get up and read the Bible and then sit down. Because expanding it all on the Bible, explanation is a form of persuasion. Secondly, it's not what uh, Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. He's not denouncing persuasion and rhetoric wholesale. There's a certain kind of appeal. The same one that he's making in 2 Corinthians. Third, it's not what you see Paul doing. Right. He is very persuasive. He is in, in he's willing to put some pressure on these people to do what God has called them to do. So I think in some ways you read 2 Corinthians and you realize. Paul has a lot of depth as a human being. He's not just a firebrand who's out to win a bunch of debates. He's not just a theologian. I mean, if anything, he is much more practical than he typically gets credit for. He is interested in practical pastoral ministry. He understands people. He understands the mission. He understands the call. And here in these two chapters, you see him 
saying, you guys need to live up to your commitment. You guys need to do what you said you're going to do. And I'm willing to put a little pressure on you if that's what it takes. And then in verse 7 of chapter 9, at the same time, and both of these are true at the same time, he says, each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He says, I'm going to put pressure on you to do the right thing, but what I really want is heart change. Mm -hmm. I want to see the fruit of your heart. And I, I think both of those are true at the same time. I think when we... Uh, go to the extreme, and and one extreme would be, I am persuasive enough to get you to become a Christian. Uh, That is leaving out the heart change. Mm -hmm. And Paul didn't go that far, but he said, but I'm not above trying to convince you that you need this change in your life. Mm -hmm. So we come to the end of chapter 9 and start chapter 10, and this is where people think one of the breaks might have been again. I think that uh, if you read this through, you'll see that there's a lot of unity in the way that he talks about his ministry in the first seven chapters, switches to talk about the collection in 8 and 9, and then back in chapter 10 on a little bit different front where he's going to defend his ministry now directly against the other apostles. Not the apostles of Peter and those guys, but the other apostles who are claiming apostolic authority in Corinth. And he says... Uh, this is in response to a charge where they say, you know, you write these bold letters and then you come in person and you are so underwhelming. Yeah. And Paul's like, all right, well, I'm going to write boldly. And if I come, I'm going to come boldly. He says, um, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show such boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. One of the reasons Paul's so fired up here is, and one of the reasons why 8 and 9 is in the middle of all this, is because he's been accused of moral and financial impropriety by the Corinthians. It's the only way we can construe some of the things he's saying that they've said against him is maybe he's taking the collection for himself. Maybe he's just never going to deliver it. Um, You can hear maybe these teachers saying, well, you know, Paul... With all of his arrests and stuff, I mean, he talks a big game, but is he really a moral person? Because moral mm-hmm. people don't go to jail all the time. Right. right. Uh, you know, moral people don't get kicked out of society. See us? We've never been arrested. We've been here. We're preaching. We're teaching. Right. Peaceful people. We're in the chamber of commerce. We're not causing problems like Paul is. Right. And so Paul's going to defend not just his ministry, but his own moral character. Right. In chapters 10 through uh, 10, really through about the end of chapter 12. So this is really interesting. I'll let you walk us through this section because Paul is really laying it on thick here in these passages. Yeah, chapter 11 is one of my favorites. And, and this is Paul who's just really so frustrated. In 11, oh, long about uh, verse 17, 16, he says, listen, Don't think that I'm a fool, but even if you do, then accept me as a fool. He said, listen, I'm going to boast a little bit now, but this is not the Lord's authority. I'm talking like an idiot here. He said, but apparently you suffer with idiots. Apparently you like fools because you're so wise. Mm -hmm. You know, these other teachers apparently are taking advantage of you, you know. So I'll tell you what, I'll do the same. He says, whatever anyone else dares to boast about. He says, I'm speaking like an idiot here. He said, this is not not pride. Well, I think to, to preface this, you could read this and think, man, Paul is just so 
insecure that he's got to right. get on their level. That's really not what's going on in this passage. He's not insecure. He's going to go ahead and lay out his resume next to their resume to show that resumes right. are stupid. Right. He's going to basically rebut the accusation that maybe he's keeping the money or maybe he's not very moral or he's in this for himself. He says, i tell you what, whatever anyone else boasts about, lay their resume down. Here's mine. And he doubles down. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I love that line. Yeah, because he's so making, Paul. He's making the point that if this just comes down to who's doing the best things yeah. in terms of the way that you grade it, I'm better than they are. Yeah. But he's saying through this whole thing, I'm talking like a madman here, saying yeah. I'm talking like you Corinthians are talking. Yeah. It, it's ridiculous. The criteria you're using to evaluate what God might be doing and not doing and what who might be a good minister of the gospel and who's not is ridiculous. Yeah, it's like, okay, if you want to talk about authenticity, here's my authenticity. He said, I've worked far harder, been imprisoned before, have countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods by the Romans. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was uh, adrift at sea and on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, etc. He said, I've been cold, I've been naked, I've been without food. He said, if you want to talk about authenticity, you really think I'm in this for myself? Mm -hmm. This is my resume. And he, like you said, he doubles down and he says, no, I'm not going to lift up and tell you that, no, it's really much easier than it seems. He says, no, it's harder than I've told you. And how can you doubt my commitment when this is my life? Right. And in the way that he resolves this is interesting because he doesn't leave it there to say, okay, so I'm better than these guys. No, he says, okay, I've had all this happen. He says, and beyond that, in chapter 12, he says, I, I know a person, uh, you know, who has been up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or not, I don't know, but saw some pretty amazing things. And uh, he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but I will not... On, on behalf of myself, I won't boast, except for we think that this is Paul right? Right, saying this. So he's saying, look, it's not just that I've been through all these hardships. I've seen things. I've been taught by the Lord. I've been up to the third heaven in a vision, and I can't even tell you the revelations. And all of this comes to a close, though, where he says, um, you forced me to be a fool, but I'm only boasting in my weakness because this is how the world works for Christians. In my weakness, God is strong. So you get this great, great passage here. My grace, you get the thorn. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast more gladly in my weaknesses. Not so I will look great. That's what the teachers in Corinth are doing. Right. I will boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He is reorienting their entire view of the world. He's not bragging in this section. He's showing the futility of the categories they're using to evaluate people and saying, actually, all those things speak to something else. How dependent are you on God and his strength 
in your ministry? Yeah, I think that's powerful. It is turning the world upside down, and he just won't he won't go play the game of those who say you can have Christ and have it all. Mm-hmm. I love this passage where he says uh, in chapter 12, uh, down along uh, verse 6, he said, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. Mm-hmm. In other words, if I did want to boast, I'd be telling you the truth. And it reminds me of that statement by Will Rogers. He said, it ain't bragging if you've done it. Yeah. <laughs> and Paul's saying, I don't like to speak like this. But I done this. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. One of the one of the things off of this topic. So I think thematically we sketch what Paul's doing in this letter. But one of the things people always wonder about in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse seven, he says, uh, "To keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited." The question is, what is the thorn? This is a, a perennial question. You hear lots right. of sermons uh, where people will attempt to answer what this is. What What are some of the common things that people think, and what do you think the thorn in Paul's flesh is? Yeah. I, I mean, there are any number of things it could be. Uh, could be a sickness. It could be a temptation. But it's sure, I, probably the most prominent idea is that he began to lose his eyesight. And I, I go with this, and I'll tell you why again. And that's con- again, I can't prove this, but that's a really common thing in the ancient world. There are an awful lot of things we don't think twice about it because most of the things that can make you lose your eyesight are really minor to us. Mm-hmm. You know, pink eye, put a little cream in it, you're good in two days. Right. You know, but there was a lot of blindness and and uh, problem. You know, cataracts, etc. I mean, there were all kinds of problems. But I think he's probably losing his eyesight. And that caused everything he did to be hard. Hard yeah. to be a tent maker, hard to uh, preach when somebody leads you up onto the podium. Uh, and he's basically calling this a messenger of Satan because, and I think he's asking God because he said, look, things are going great. I mean, yeah, I'm suffering, but the word is proliferating. And since that's the case, Lord, surely you want to take this away because, man, we're doing great here. And God's answer is just really good in that context, mm-hmm. you know, is that, but no, my grace is enough for me. I want to make sure nobody thinks this is about you. And Paul mm-hmm. says, well, so do I. In that case, I'll boast about my weakness. Right. And uh, so I think that, and then, of course, the passage where he writes in such large letters with my own hand, mm-hmm. see with what large letters I write you. There's no reason to say that. I mean, he says in other places, this is my handwriting. This is not a forgery. But see with what large letters I write. Right. So it's really just a little detective work, but maybe he was losing his eyesight. Yeah, I think that's one of the common ones. You see him, he is sick at certain times, Mm -hmm. uh, and they deviate from their travel plans a couple of times because of physical illness, whether that's eyesight issues. I mean, his body had to have been just gnarly. Uh, if you think about the list of things that he talks about in chapter 11, the scar tissue alone on his back. Oh, no kidding. I mean, 145 lashes. Yeah. It's its hard to even imagine what that would have looked like. Right. Uh, I, would, I would think that he probably could not stand up straight. Right. And, yeah, eyesight, uh, poor health. I think that's definitely part of it. As you mentioned, the end of Galatians, he talks about the big letters that he writes. He also says at the end of Galatians, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. Yes. So I think that's definitely a piece. 
I tend to think that it has less to do with the physical elements and more to do with the psychological things that he went through. Just because he says a thorn was given in the flesh, so that there's a fleshly component there. Uh-huh. But I also think that a messenger of Satan to harass me might involve something like uh, the reminder of what he was like before he was a Christian. Some kind right. of uh, I don't I, I I don't like when people over psychologize Paul. Right. But there are some elements of his writing where he talks about what a burden it is to remember what he did. You know, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. He has blood on his hands. Yeah. And so I think there's a psychological element to this too, just because of the word harass. So it's not the the, the messenger of Satan, thorn in the flesh, that indicates physical. And I think the eyesight or something like it is probably the most likely. Mm -hmm. But from another standpoint, the demonic um, harassment could have to do with Guilt could have to do with his past, could have to do with uh, what he talked about in in the first part of this letter, that they thought they were going to die and uh, that they were going to lose this church. They probably lost the church in Galatia. I mean, Paul's ministry was not 100% success rate. It was very difficult. He talked about the anxiety he has for all of his churches every day in verse 11. So I think we don't really know what this is. I think probably, I'm, I'm trying to think of what the most common thing is. Probably the eyesight, I think. Is probably. What, what but you know, say. back to your idea about the sense of guilt and the nagging uh, things from your past, we all have those. And But if you remember in the book of Acts, Paul tells his story three times. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I, mm-hmm. I can see Paul telling this story literally in every village. I bet he told that story a thousand times. And I'm not exaggerating. He says, well, let me tell you who I was. Mm-hmm. And now let me tell you what happened when I literally met Christ. I yeah. used to kill Christians, and here I am. He told that story a lot. And I don't think we should underestimate the power of his sin being, as to quote the words of David, my sin is always before me. Mm-hmm. And, and I know he knew that he was forgiven. Nevertheless, he's telling his testimony all the time, and it's like, man, uh, that's a burden. It's got to be a burden to constantly go back and repeat your biggest mistakes in life. Mm-hmm. That's, so you, you that's got to be point. part of it. So at the end of the letter, he talks about Titus again. We see Titus through uh, chapters uh, 7 and in the middle of 8. He's commending Titus like he's going to send him. Uh, this is another place where people think that maybe this is multiple letter- letters because he asks them about Titus coming. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we have to say, you know what, there's a lot going on in the background here. Right. Multiple trips that we don't know about, letters, uh, also the time span of writing this. We don't know. Uh, like you said, maybe he comes back to it two weeks later, three weeks later, or something like that. But he intends to come to them. And when he does, in chapter 13, he gives them a warning. <laughs> you guys need to get it together before I come. Uh, because he says, I do not want to come uh, with the power that I have been given by God yeah. uh, to straighten these things out. He really did have a sense that he had authority to speak the word of God into these churches. Uh, but he'd rather that they would agree with one another. That's that's the way you get the final exhortation here in verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of, and of love and peace will be with you. You know, I'm uh, amazed at Paul 
in that we sometimes forget. You read this letter, and he's so pastoral, and he's pleading with them. And then just at the end, he just talks about, don't make me come with the power of God, because I will mm-hmm. you know, demonstrate the power of God. He's not saying, I'm going to kill you or something. He's just saying, we'll make this clear if we need to. This is the same Paul. Remember back in the book of Acts, not only has the Holy Spirit done miracles through him, remember, this is the thing that amazed me, even handkerchiefs that touched Paul were mm-hmm. then taken to the sick and they were healed. Right. It's not that Paul has the power, but Paul is perfectly convinced that the Holy Spirit is with him. Yeah. And so it's not Paul saying, well, I can zap you if I want to. What he's saying is, is look, I know the Spirit is with me. If you've lived yeah. what I've lived, you will know that's right. Well, he's convinced that the Spirit will affirm Right, the truth of God, and so he t- he says that to the Corinthians in First Corinthians. He says, "Look, this is not a matter of wise words, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That is the affirmation of the message." And uh, you see that in Paul's life, and yeah, he is convinced that if he comes to Corinth, and it's a matter of him or these other apostles that the Spirit is going to prove in the hearts of the believers and through signs and wonders that his message is true. He really is convinced that God is going to prove himself through the work of the Spirit. And that confidence is not something that only Paul can have. We really should believe, not necessarily that we can do miracles at any moment, but that God, who is in charge of miracles, which is what we get from Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Mm -hmm will affirm and will be vindicated in what he says is true. And we have to rely on that. And yet, what I love about this, this is the definition of humility. It's not until the very last chapter of the book that he even mentions this. Everything else is pleading with them Mm -hmm. to hear the truth of the gospel. That's humility. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Mm-hmm.